sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think that you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. All right. Good morning, church. Thank you, Caden, for reading. I appreciate that. Uh, let's open with some prayer, and uh, then we'll just kind of dive right in. God, thank you for this opportunity this morning. God, I'm constantly in awe of your word, God, and Lord, I just pray that you would use it uh, as you would see fit this morning, God, that you use it to encourage us, to challenge us, to correct us, um, God, and to train us and draw us closer to yourself. And so, God, just send your spirit during this time and uh, use me as a willing vessel. In your name I pray. Amen. Uh, so, I've entitled the message this morning, Hope and Temptation, but a better title would probably be something along the lines of a warning for the church. And so, uh, this passage really is just that. It's a warning to the church in Corinth. And so, uh, as I generally like to do uh, before diving in, I want to set the stage for you of what's going on, give you as much background as I can, because that will provide the context for our message this morning. So, um, <clears throat> Paul has this miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus, and he begins going on these missionary journeys to share the message of Jesus and the gospel with the people. And towards the end of his second missionary journey, uh, he goes to a town called Corinth, and he shares uh, the gospel there. And he stays there for a year and a half, all right, a year and a half, and he starts a church there. And this letter that we're calling 1 Corinthians was potentially written while he was in Ephesus on his third journey. Uh, but there's a little bit of info we need to know about the city of Corinth in order to help put this in proper context. You see, Corinth was a port town. So there were two ports um, on, uh, in the town of, of Corinth. And so for centuries, all north and south land traffic passed straight through uh, Corinth. And so it prospered. It was a major trade city at that time for Greece and for much of the Mediterranean. And so many different types of people would come through there. But the city of Corinth was exceedingly corrupt. I don't know how much you know about that. It was exceedingly corrupt. So much so uh, that its very name became synonymous with moral depravity. All right? So let's just say they had a reputation all right, uh, for being really, really just for being filthy, um, for lack of a better term. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was known for sexual immorality. And the phrase, to play the Corinthian, meant to play the whore, and so it was synonymous with that. It was home to temples for so many other gods, including, there was a, a giant temple as well for the god Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. And this is important in the passage as it speaks in a little bit to sexual immorality, because with this particular temple, there were over a thousand prostitutes that worked at this temple. See, this town was messed up. All right? And the people there were influenced by the sinful behavior around them, by the wealth, by the Greek philosophy that was taught, many times by vain and self-conceited philosophers. And so what does God do? He sends Paul to a place devoid of morals to begin a church. That sounds like something God would do, right? Like, we're not going to send you where everything looks good. We're going to send you where it's completely messed up. 
And what that reminded me of was a passage in Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Um, I think even by the pagan standards, the town of Corinth was pretty sick. It was very sick. And it needed the words of Jesus. And so Paul, uh, while he's on this other journey, he gets this report of all these things that are going wrong in the church. And so the first four chapters deal with division in the church. Well, uh, since Paul shared with me, I'm following Paul, and I'm following this leader, and I'm following this leader, and there's division amongst the church. In chapters five through seven, it deals with a lot of the sexual sins present in the church. And then in chapters eight through 10, it deals with some of the topics we're going to see in our passage today. See, we'll be looking at idolatry in our passage today. And as we do, let me remind you of something. Because to me, this is probably the most important thing to remember as we start. This passage that Paul has written isn't addressing idolatry and sin of the unbeliever, but sin in the church. All right? You got to keep that in mind. His audience here is the church of Corinth. His audience isn't a bunch of people that have never heard the name of Jesus before. It's people that are proclaiming to follow Jesus, but their words and their actions don't match. That's the audience here, as, as Paul writes, okay? Um, he, he isn't addressing the unbeliever, but the church. And so these are sins that were prevalent in the church, and they still rear their ugly heads in churches today as well. And so as we read and study uh, what I want to ask you to do, at least as far as your mindset goes, is consider yourself personally as a part of the church and consider even Hazelwood Baptist Church as well. See, the passage that Caden read for us offers both warnings and encouragement when we're tempted to worship anything besides God. And so we're going to go through our passage verse by verse this morning to the best of my ability anyway. And so the very first thing that Paul does in this passage and the first four verses, is he reminds the people of Corinth of God's goodness to those who are his. And he immediately goes back to, uh, to Israel. He immediately goes back to their escape uh, from the Egyptians. He goes back to Exodus with this. And so the very first thing he reminds them of uh, in verse 1 is it says that our fathers were all under the cloud. And so what does that mean? Well, in Exodus 13, uh, as God is leading the people away from the Egyptians, he went before them by day and a pillar of cloud and by night as a pillar of fire. And so he went before them uh, with this cloud. And what this cloud did was uh, a reminder of God's protection. It protected them uh, during the heat of the day from the, the sun. It protected them from the enemy because at times it would be basically a barrier between them and the enemy so they couldn't see them. Uh, it provided protection for them. And so what Paul does to begin this uh, as he speaks to the church, as he reminds them of some things. And that was the first one, um, was that they were under the cloud, and it was a reminder of God's protection. The second thing that, uh, that he reminds them of, it says they passed through the sea in verse 1. And so in Exodus 14, God splits the Red Sea so they can pass through on dry ground, and then he covers the Egyptian army with the same Red Sea. And so they were dear to God, these people were, and God would work miracles for their deliverance and take them under his guidance and protection. And in a moment, I'm going to share with you why he says these four things to start with, okay? And so they pass through the sea. God protects them, God guides them, and he delivers them by splitting that for them. And then the third thing that it does in verse 2, it says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And that's kind of an interesting phrase, baptized into Moses, because uh, I think for most of us, it would be like, I've never heard that phrase. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it's kind of interesting. Uh, there's a couple of thoughts 
uh, with regard to what that means. Some of, one is that um, it means they're brought under obligation to Moses' law and covenant uh, as we are by baptism under the new law and covenant um, that we have through Jesus. And so it's kind of a comparison there of Moses and the law and covenant in the Old Testament as well as that with Jesus in the New Testament. Um, and if you know much about baptism, baptism was a symbol uh, of changing your life to follow someone or something else. And so um, Christianity wasn't the first use of baptism. It would happen anytime somebody changed a belief from one thing to another. And so in this case, they were choosing to follow Moses. They were, uh, they were with him as their leader as he was following God. And so uh, it says they were baptized into Moses, and so God gives them leadership worthy of following in those times. And the fourth thing that he does here in verses 3 and 4 is he reminds them that they had the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And so in Exodus 16, God provides them with manna from heaven, and in Exodus 17, he provides water from a rock. And in this passage, Paul refers to it as spiritual food. In other words, it wasn't natural. It came as a result of a miracle. So it was miracle bread and miracle water that they had that sustained them physically and gave them physical life in difficult times. And if you can imagine how much food and how much water it took for millions of people every single day, it was an incredible miracle of God that that happened. Just incredible. For us today, we don't have literal bread raining down from heaven, um, but we do have that spiritual food, every believer. And in John chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so much like the Israelites needed that manna and that water for physical life, Jesus is our spiritual bread of life and the source of eternal water. He's our source of all support, and he'll protect and sustain his people. And so Paul reminds them of these things to start. And one of the key words in these verses is it uses the word all on several occasions. Because each one of these Israelites experienced all of the same showings of God's power. They all witnessed God splitting the sea. They all witnessed and partook of the manna coming from heaven and the water from the rock. They were, <clears throat> excuse me, all witnesses to these things. And yet when we get to verse 5, it provides us a troubling thought. It says, with most of them, God wasn't pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. See, they experienced all these things. They knew exactly who God was, and yet he wasn't pleased with most of them. As a matter of fact, God only allows two of the men over 19 years old who originally left Egypt to see the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. And that was a result of Israel's disobedience. And so as a church, we're called to be faithful as God is faithful. And so each one of these people experienced God's goodness and they experienced God's mercy. And what happened? They still fell and they still chased other things. And that's the first warning that we get to in this passage. The warnings are kind of sprinkled out, so hopefully you can track with me a little bit. All right. So the first warning that we see here is in verse 5. And it's the idea that it's possible to experience God's grace and his goodness and still give in to temptation. It's possible 
As a matter of fact, I think most of us would say that that's us in some way, shape, or form. That as followers of Jesus, we've experienced his goodness and salvation. We've experienced it on a daily basis, and we still fall. And that's the first warning he gives here. Just because they did these things doesn't mean they're immune to sin. That they were immune to temptation. That they were immune from idolatry. And then we get to verse 6. And verse 6 tells us to learn from the examples of the Israelites that we might not desire evil as they did. See, to to desire evil is to act on selfish cravings that are contrary to God's will. And he's telling us you should shun those desires. Don't lust after those things. Don't chase those things. The NIV says to not set our hearts on evil things. In other words, don't make these evil thoughts your aim like they did. Don't make that your aim. But we are called to learn from their examples. Why do we need examples? It's really pretty simple. It's because we forget things. It's really that simple. Because we're forgetful people. And forgetful people need reminders. And so he says, look at these as examples of what not to do. So that you don't do these things. In the case of Israel, God allowed certain things to happen to them for the sake of later generations. Israel's experiences provided Christians now with both positive and negative lessons. And so in this particular letter, in this passage we're looking at, we find specific examples from Israel's history that were parallel to some of the things taking place in Corinth. And so remember how corrupt Corinth was and is, and we'll compare. The next few verses speak to those things and address the kinds of evil that they desired and the way that they sought after things that weren't of the Lord. And so uh, they give a few common evils. And here's the first one, and it's mentioned in verse 7, is idolatry. All right, that was the first evil that was desired there. And it's uh, a reference in this passage uh, to Exodus 32. And so in Exodus 32, like I said, he keeps going back here to Israel and reminding them, here's what Israel did, here's what Israel did. Don't do that. Learn from that. Get past that. In Exodus 32, the people make a golden calf, and they eat and drink and rise up to play. See, they're mixing worship of the one true God while also worshiping false gods. They think there's no harm, but there were consequences. Later in Exodus 32, it tells us that 3,000 men died that day as a consequence for their sin. For the people of Corinth, Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 8 about the people of the church eating meat from sacrifices made to other gods. In other words, they were participating in acts of idolatry and worshiping other idols by eating that meat from that sacrifice. There's some interesting phrases here in this, in this verse dealing with idolatry and being an idolater. It says, the eating and drinking and rising up to play. So the eating and drinking was a feast that was a part of idol worship. And so as they would go to these other temples and worship these false gods, there was a feast that would take place and they would be eating and drinking. And then it has this phrase, rise up to play. And while I don't want to get into detail on it, it definitely has sexual connotations to it. Okay, It could be dancing with no clothes. It could be physical acts that were taking place that were often a part of idol worship. And so he speaks out about these things. These are the things that you're doing as you're worshiping this other idol. 
And in Corinth in this time, there were so many other temples to other Greek and Roman gods that people were having a hard time changing their ways. They were having a hard time leaving behind the things that they did before they encountered the message of the gospel in order to seek after Jesus and the message that he gave. See, they were using the freedom they had from the gospel to continue to serve other gods. Well, I have this freedom in Christ. I have this freedom to do what I want because I'm saved and because I'm, I'm forgiven, and so I'm going to do what I want. Let me just remind us that Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, tells us that no one can serve two masters. We got one. That's it. Some people choose to serve self. Some people will choose other gods. Some people will choose only the Lord our God. But we can only serve one. See, the God we serve is a jealous God. He desires all worship, all glory, all honor, and he doesn't share that with anyone. He doesn't, but oftentimes we try to make him. And so Paul calls out idol worship in verse 7. What kind of idols might we have? Something to give some thought to. And now as we look at a few of these others, I want to preface it by saying this. Even though Paul directly calls out idolaters in verse 7, uh, these other sins that are mentioned here can also be forms of idolatry if we're not careful. Okay, Remember, his audience is the church. Here's the second one that's in verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. And so he's referencing Israel falling from Numbers chapter 25, when it says the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. So they were committing um, these sexual sins, and they were worshiping the God of those daughters. They were worshiping Baal, and the consequence was the death of roughly 23,000 to 24,000 people. So Numbers, in the book of Numbers, it says 24,000 here. In 1 Corinthians, it says 23, um, because they were approximate numbers. And so uh, the people of Israel committed this sin. And so he gives them this example, and he reminds them of the consequences. See, for the people of Corinth, sexual immorality ran rampant, and many were addicted to it. Paul had already spoken to them to address several issues. In chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he calls out a man uh, having an inappropriate relationship with his stepmom. In chapter 6, he calls out sexual sin and the practice of homosexuality. In chapter 7, he speaks on marriage, and he calls out sexual immorality outside of marriage and says if you can't show self-control then you might as well marry that it's better to marry than burn with passion and while I have the floor for just a moment let me also point out that Paul speaks very highly of the option of singleness for those who are called to it we don't often speak to that as a church but we should singleness is biblical so marriage isn't the end game but being a faithful follower of Jesus and glorifying him is and so Paul has already addressed some sexual sins with them. But this sin was so easily available to them. And I think this is one place that we really can understand and connect well in our society. It was so easily available. As a matter of fact, that temple that was dedicated to Venus had a thousand prostitutes that worked there. So when they would worship these other gods, uh, sexual immorality would ensue. As a matter of fact, many of these types of acts were a part of the worship to these other gods. There were even fertility religions that believed participating in this type of prostitution brought health, fertility, and prosperity. It was pretty messed up. 
but it was easily available. As a matter of fact, the country we live in is no different. And when this thing says sexual immorality, when Scripture says sexual immorality, it's referring to all types of sexual sin. It's referring to promiscuity, to homosexuality, to prostitution. And in our day, I would add that it would suggest pornography. We have access to these things at our fingertips, and our culture pushes them as being perfectly okay. Sexual sin surrounds us on a regular basis. But if your body and my body is being raised with Jesus now and for the future, as Scripture says, then what you do with your body matters. It's not yours to do with whatever you would want, which is how the church of Corinth was treating it. Following Jesus involves no compromise when it comes to sexual integrity. It involves no compromise. Sexual sin can easily be a form of idolatry if we let it. If we begin to worship things like sex or like sexuality and all of these things, because we know it's such a broad topic in our world, in our society, and yet it is pushed at every corner. So it's not just the church of Corinth that had it readily available and had it so prominent that it was hard to escape from. We live it today. The third thing that he mentions here in verse 9 is that it says we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Uh, The Amplified Version put it this way, don't tempt the Lord, don't try his patience, don't become a trial to him, and don't exploit his goodness. For those of you that have kids or work with kids, I guarantee you've had a child that constantly tested you on a regular basis. I'm not saying which one of my children it is, but if you know them, you could probably guess at this moment. All right? We all, if you've ever experienced anything with, with a child, whether it's through work or whether it's your own kids or whatever, they have a tendency to test and push boundaries, right? Let's see if I can get away with this. Or, well, mom said no, now I'm going to go ask dad. Or whatever the case is, they tend to push these boundaries. They tend to test us to see what they can get away with. And in the Old Testament, Israel does this. They test God with their impatience, their grumbling, and their desire for more. In Numbers 21, the people become impatient, and in their impatience, they speak out against God and against Moses. They refer to God's provisions, the food and water that he's provided them. They refer to those as worthless, and God punishes them by sending fiery serpents who bit and killed many of the people. See, this this sinful testing of putting Christ to the test occurs when we doubt God's goodness, when we approach him with unbelief and disobedience, when we test his tolerance of sin. I want to repeat that. It happens when we test God's tolerance of sin. I can do this because it's not as bad as this. God won't care. He'll forgive me. We're testing God when we do those things. The Corinthians... We're testing God, just as Israel had. See, the Christians at Corinth did this by attending pagan feasts. They went to places they had no right to be. Today, it's still possible to test God. If we do things we're not supposed to do or go to places where you really should not be, we make a trial of God. If we expose ourselves to dangerous and difficult circumstances and expect God to step in and save us from our recklessness, we test God. When we push the envelope to see what God will allow or permit, we're guilty of testing God. And he calls out the church for doing the same. He's saying, why are y'all walking the line? Get away from it. 
That's not acceptable. See, Jesus responds to temptation in Luke 4.12 by saying this, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. And here's the last one he mentions here in verse 10 on these specific evil desires they had. And number four was grumbling. All right? None of us ever do that, so we don't have to worry about this one, right? Nobody ever grumbles. Um, but the word that, that is used here is kind of interesting. It's speaking in a low voice, half under one's breath. Nobody ever does that, right? We don't, we don't mumble under our breath when we talk to folks, right? But when you do that, you don't do that when you're saying something nice, right? Like if I'm going to encourage somebody, I'm not going to mumble that under my breath. I'm going to say it where they can hear me. If I'm going to say something a little bit soft under my breath, it's because I don't want people to hear it because it's got a negative connotation to it. And that's what he's talking about when he's speaking of grumbling. It's like I don't want everyone to hear it, but I don't mind if somebody hears it. It's usually a complaint or something negative. In multiple places, including Numbers chapter 14, the people grumble against God and Moses, and they believe things were better the way they were. Why did you bring us here? We had this back here. Let's go back and be under slavery again. They grumble. They complain. But with that grumbling came consequences. Later in Numbers 14, for example, is when God tells them that only Caleb and Joshua are going to see the promised land of the men over 20. So the Corinthians murmured just the same against Paul. They grumbled against him and against Christ. And they, had, uh, they seemed to have set up other teachers. These other teachers would uh, indulge and soothe them and in particularly uh, incite more of a revolt uh, really a revolt to idolatry. So they would push them towards idolatry in some way. But for us as believers, rather than complain, we're called to be grateful for what we have. We can grow in gratitude and we can lessen our complaining if we remember some things. One is that complaining is usually wasted energy because God doesn't like it. And let's just be honest, you may have some good friends that are willing to listen and they don't really want to hear it either. <laughs> they don't really want to hear it either. Right? My friends don't want to hear me complain for 30 minutes straight. That's not what they desire to do. Will they do it because they're good friends? Yes, but they don't like it either. And so God lays out these examples to the church of Corinth. And they, they can relate because the church of Corinth is doing the exact same things that Israel did. And that's what he warns them about in verse 6 when he's saying to learn from their examples. And so in each one of these examples, God not only speaks of the sins, but the consequences of the sins. And he does this because some in the church lived as though belief in Jesus meant they could live as they wanted. And so Paul includes the consequences to remind them that God hates sin. And there is no free pass. That's not the way this works, to live however you desire so he gives them examples of things that relate directly to them, about idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God and grumbling. And then we get to verse 11, and it sounds an awful lot like verse 6. He kind of bookends these four things with the idea uh, that these examples, these writings, these people, these events in the Old Testament scriptures exist for our instruction, so verse 11 says, these happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. It's one of the reasons why it's so important that we both preach and teach both the Old and the New Testaments. And so as we 
uh, as we, we do, we continue to learn from their example until Jesus returns. That's that idea at the end there, on whom the end of the ages has come. The NIV says they were written as warnings for us. The Amplified Version says they were written to admonish and fit us for right action. These examples happen to fit us for right action, to guide and direct us to we make the right choice. Learning from their example alters our actions, and that's warning number two that is present in this passage. Don't repeat past mistakes, but learn from them. That's warning number two. So don't repeat past mistakes, but learn from them. We went over this in Sunday school last week in a passage as we were talking about how the dog returns to its vomit, that idea that we return to our sin, that we repeat the same thing over and over, and Paul warns the church against that here. So much so that he says it in verse 6 and again in verse 11. And then when we get to verse 12, Paul issues us another caution. Here's what verse 12 says, that anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. And the warning here is to not let your guard down and always be ready. Never let your guard down. Always be ready. See, uh, we sometimes can become too confident in our own power or our own ability, and we try to do things on our own, but let's be reminded that Satan is prowling like a lion waiting to devour us. And when we try to do things under our own power, meanwhile the enemy is waiting for an opportunity to pounce, we're setting ourselves up. Proverbs sixteen eighteen reminds us that pride goes before a fall. And so when you or I think, are too sure of ourselves, we set ourselves up to fall. When we get cocky and we think, this could never happen to me, I would never do that, we're entering a dangerous area. Because for many Christians today, they place themselves in spiritually damaging environments, but think their faith is strong enough to keep them from falling. And then when they're drawn away and enticed with sin, they think that they're strong enough to just flirt with temptation. That idea of walking the line without giving in. But Paul warns us, if you think that you stand, you better be careful. You better be careful. You better not let your guard down. You can never get to the point where you think you're good enough that, God, that, that Satan cannot tempt you because he will. And so we are most likely to fall when we are the most confident in our own strength. Because that's when we're most apt to be off guard. When we're confident in God's strength, you see the difference in focus, confidence in my strength, confidence in God's strength. There's a difference in focus there. When we're confident in God's strength, we're much more able to battle temptation. And so here we are. We have this list of examples given us from the Israelites in Moses' time that directly relates to the people in Corinth. And he gives us warning after warning after warning. And it sounds like Paul is really just ripping the church, is what it sounds like in much of 1 Corinthians. But even in this passage, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Paul gives a word of encouragement. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons I chose to preach on this today is because this verse has been a key verse for me anytime I deal with temptation in my own life. See, it's one of my favorites because it's a promise, and it's one of my favorite promises in all of Scripture. And it falls in a verse that I would suggest is often misquoted and misused. Um, but I digress. And here it is. Chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, 
He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so here's where the encouragement comes in. The first element is that the temptations you deal with are common. All right? The temptations we deal with are common. And here's why that's an encouragement. Because sometimes we look at our circumstances and we think nobody could ever understand what I'm going through. No one could ever understand the pain, the suffering, how difficult it is for me to say no. They can't understand what I'm dealing with. We think our circumstances are so much different or so much greater than someone else's. And Paul reminds us here that when it comes to temptation, these are common. And he speaks to that with confidence after sharing about the same temptations that Israel dealt with over a thousand years before that the church of Corinth was still dealing with. So he reminds them that they're common. And so that's an encouragement because that means for us, there's others there that understand what we're going through. Maybe even others that can walk us with us through the struggle. So he reminds us that temptation is common. The second thing he reminds us of is that God is faithful. And I love that. It's just a simple three words in the middle of that that is so huge. That God is faithful. See, Satan is a deceiver. Men will deceive. The world pushes us towards sin. But God is faithful. He's faithful to be there right with us. He's faithful to provide us the strength and security that we need. He's there Whenever temptation strikes, to walk with us through it. He keeps his covenant, and he will never disappoint the hope and the trust of his children. God is faithful. And the last part of this is that God always provides a way of escape when tempted. And this has really, really helped in a lot of ways. See, people generally focus uh, on the part about being tempted beyond your ability, um, but forget the part about the promise of an escape. See, either our trials are going to be proportioned to our strength, or the strength will be supplied by God in proportion to our temptations. Either way, the strength to face them will be there. But when tempted, God provides a way of escape. In other words, here's what he's saying. There is always another option besides sin. Y'all hear that? There's always another option besides sin. Sin is never the only option. Saying yes to temptation is never the only option. The way of escape may not be easy, it may not be fun, but there will always be one. And the option that does not lead to giving into temptation is the one that glorifies God the most. That's the one we're called to seek after. See, we can be tempted to do what's wrong or simply to, do what's, to not do what's right. But regardless, God has a particular God-given way of escape for every temptation that we face. That's encouraging. Because many times when we're in the middle of these situations, we can't see a way out. But God's word promises that there is one. And so with that can come comfort. With that should redirect our focus and attention to say, all right, God, what is it? And then to seek after that. Some escape may come through Scripture, as Jesus fought temptation with Scripture. Some may come through prayer, or through focusing our mind on the right things, or maybe even choosing to hang out with the right friends. But God always provides a way of escape. Consider Israel with their backs against the Red Sea. God provides a way of escape. What a promise that he gives us. When we're tempted as the Israelites were, as the church of Corinth 
was God has promised us a way of escape. We never have to give in to temptation. There's always a choice to say no. And so I'm thankful for this word of encouragement that Paul gives us. He then reminds us again in the last verse of our our text today in verse 14 to flee idolatry. In other words, don't just avoid being an idolater, but flee it. And so literally uh, holding oneself back from the worship of idols, shunning the idea of loving anything more than God, fleeing it, running away from it. It's it's, it's an idea of showing self-restraint and self-control in the face of temptation. And so the church of Corinth was tempted to go back to the ways that they had before. They were tempted to continue to seek out these other gods that they were surrounded by. They were tempted to chase after the sexual immorality and the questioning and trying of God and the grumbling that they were surrounded by. And they were tempted to continue to live in those ways. And Paul's like, knock it off. We've seen this this movie before. Let's go back and watch it. You see what happened as a result. Paul names the consequences for almost each and every one. He reminds them that there's consequences for those, cho- those choices and those decisions. And so I just want to remind us of a couple things here as we close, all right? Thank you all for sticking with me. Uh, consider the church today. I want you to consider Hazelwood Baptist Church today. Consider yourself as a part of the body of Christ for de- today. For the church of Corinth, their most serious problem was worldliness. See, they were unwilling to divorce the culture around them. They were unwilling. They had no desire to do that. Most of the believers couldn't consistently separate themselves from their old, immoral, pagan ways. And so Paul writes this letter, as well as several others, to correct them. See, the temptations that they were dealing with were connected to the culture that they lived in. So think about that for a moment. Many of those temptations were directly related to the culture and the society that surrounded them and that they were a part of. In our world, what things are we surrounded by in our culture that could cause problems within the church? What would some of those be? I'm not asking you to shout that out at the moment, but at least give some thought to it. What are some of those things that we are surrounded by in our culture and our society that would cause problems within the church There's some that, in my opinion, are blatantly obvious, sexual sins, sexuality, homosexuality, all these things that are pushed in our culture, responding to hate with hate, which is contrary to Jesus who chose compassion, and there's plenty of other examples of things that could cause problems within the church. But let's be honest, if it's something that our society and our culture pushes, you can be guaranteed that there are folks in the church dealing with these same temptations. We may not always talk about it because we want folks to look at us like we're great. So we may not mention it because we're scared of what people will think. But all these things, these temptations that society and the culture push are things that people within the church deal with. We're not immune to it because we're in the church. Now we may not give into it as often or maybe at all, but we still face the same temptations. And what Paul says here is quite simple. You don't have to choose to give in to temptations pushed by the culture around you. As a matter of fact, it ruins your witness as your walk and your talk don't match. But because God is faithful, he provides us a way out. 
And so for those of us dealing with certain temptations this morning, whether it be the temptation to serve some sort of idol, whether it be a sexual temptation or grumbling against God, uh, I just want to end with a word of encouragement to repent and to seek that way out. The way that glorifies God the most is the one that we're called to choose. And he promises that way because he's faithful. Let's pray together. God, thank you this morning for your word. Um, God, I know that there are folks that deal with all sorts of issues, Lord, that deal with all sorts of temptation, that deal with all sorts of sin. And God, we know that you took Paul and used him to plant a church in a place that was filthy. God, we know that our culture and society around us is much the same. So God, as a church, may we repent of the things that we chase after that aren't the name of Jesus. God, open our eyes to the way out when we're tempted in certain situations. God, allow us to remember not just your faithfulness to be present and to provide, but also your faithfulness in upholding justice and providing consequences for sin as well, God. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this warning because, God, we know that no church is immune to falling into sin. God, may we be a church that seeks after you, that loves you wholeheartedly, and that desires to be pure and holy as you are pure and holy. It's in your name I pray. Amen.